Acts chapter 6, as we press on in the study of the advance of the kingdom, it's this grand theme of the book of Acts. The kingdom of God is advancing. God is building his church. It began with that miraculous start on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the last big feast of the Passover, God poured out his spirit. It was followed by the miracles that confirmed this gospel message. And now it has continued in our last couple chapters with the boldness of the church in testifying even before governing authorities. The gospel is spreading as Jesus said it would like that mustard seed, that tiny sliver of a seed that's planted and grows into a massive bush. So the church, with its humble beginnings in these handful of disciples and all their foibles and sin failures and faithlessness, that seed has been planted. And Jesus has encouraged these imperfect disciples to take this gospel over all the world. And it's happening. The church has weathered the storm of hypocrisy. That story of Ananias and Sapphira. The church has not faltered in the face of government opposition and threat. Vocalizing this simple resolve, we must obey God rather than men. And so now the devil pulls out a devastating weapon against the church and its mission. And that weapon is division. Division. Satan highlights in our text genuine needs that people had to foster division. An us-against-them mindset in this early church. We can see it in the language of verse 1. In these days when the disciples were increasing in number, that sounds good, and it is. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Same church, same body of believers. They're, they're kind of bunkered down against this threat of persecution and opposition, but they didn't realize the next threat was coming from within when a complaint arose against someone else in the church because of these needs. It's the classic war strategy of divide and conquer, which calls to mind the popular expression, united we stand, what? Divided we fall. Both these sayings, in the context of war, give us the same conclusion. Division leads to defeat. And the devil knows that. And so just as the church, this fledgling church, is gaining some momentum, the devil turns to division. If I could get them against them then the advance of the gospel and the kingdom of God, the name of Christ becomes secondary to my name, my party, my circle of people that agree with me and my needs. The threat of disunity is real. 
Our task is to look at this text and figure out what is the solution that unfolds in this story. I would venture to say most of you could tell a pretty sad, maybe we might say juicy story about church division. You've probably seen some in your day. You've probably seen some pretty monumental, epic struggles in the church. Tragically, over probably not even great theological matters all the time. But stereotypically, things like carpet color, you know, building projects, programs that seem to highlight some people and overlook others. And soon enough, the devil is delighting in God's church. God's church divided. So what is the solution to verse 1? The complaint of one group against the other. Us against them. You've heard this before. It's, well, they don't understand what we're trying to say. And it's us and them. Or instead of my church, it starts becoming the church, right? Well, I would go there, but the church just doesn't recognize. Who are we talking about here? It's people. It's all the faces filling all these seats. And the devil is out to, to, to get us against them to cause some kind of division. Well, the, the solution, you heard it read for you already, the story. In short, the leaders say, listen, we are consumed with serving in this way, but we need some of you to serve in another way. Let's organize some servants. And that's what happens. And so the big idea that unfolds from this story of widows starting a squabble about needs not being met, that comes to the attention of the church, and the church together rounds up some servants to do a little serving. The big idea is serving unifies the church for the advance of the gospel. No matter how much our Doctrinal statements or philosophy statements or mission statements might say, we need to get this good news about Jesus saving sinners to the whole world. If we're busy fighting each other in business meetings and having long protracted discussions about why we should get our way in the church, we're probably not going to do a whole lot of evangelistic pursuit in the week to come. We're busy crafting our arguments for why the church should be this way or that way. Serving unifies the church for what it is supposed to do. Jesus said to this church before it was even called the church, you will be my witnesses. Tell people about me and my salvation. Serving unifies the church. And so here's the invitation. Not that I'm going to stop talking. I'm just telling you what the invitation is, all right? How are you serving? Because your service, up front, behind the scenes, in the classrooms, throughout the week, that service is serving the greater cause of the church. That service is producing a healthy body where needs and self-interests don't become primary. The gospel's advance is primary. 
but your service is eliminating the distraction of needs, real needs, genuine needs at times, that need loving attention so that those needs don't blind us from our purpose as witnesses. How are you serving? How are you giving of yourself to help others feel loved and cared for so that the church can focus on its kingdom purpose? It was imperative in our story that this devil-kindled fire be extinguished quickly. I've only had one experience putting out fires. It was up in an attic of one of our camp buildings. And I, I think I'd just rather the building burn down than to go up there a second time with a fire extinguisher and blow all that white stuff all over the place. I was in a cloud of not-so-glorious white thinking, I think I'm going to die because of the fire extinguisher now rather than the smoke and fire. It was a fire that needed to be put out quick if we're going to keep our camp building. In our text, a fire has broken out and the church responds quickly recognizing this kind of devil-kindled fire has to be put out quickly. But it's not put out with some kind of authority like, well, you Hellenistic widows need to buck up and quit complaining. Maybe they did. But it seems like there was a recognition that the need was legitimate. And while the complaint was probably invalid, they could have raised it a better way. There's this loving service that is summoned from the church and they respond. And you heard how the story ends and we'll look at it in a moment. So let's examine this story and see how practical needs met with godly serving lead to the health of the church and the continued advance of the kingdom. Instead of reading about a big speed bump that derails the church and now we've got to pick up all these pieces and the Hellenist church of believers is meeting on that side of town and the, the Hebrew believers are over here, by God's grace and by some humble service, needs are met and the unity is preserved and we're still focused on the goal, getting the gospel to all the world. We begin by recognizing, number one, that the church is full of needs. It's full of needs. In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. I think it's probably fair to say that with more disciples come more needs. We can look around in our body and think we're a medium-sized church, small church. I don't know. It depends what you compare it to. The reality is every person that walked in the doors this morning and every family represented here probably could name on just the short list Five, ten pressing needs, things that will occupy your mind this week, things that will cause you anxiety and stress, things that will force the spiritual battle of, am I trusting God with these things? They are real, legitimate needs. They are struggles. They may be short-term. They may be very long-term. Every one of you brought needs in. Don't look around and think, oh, there's some of those picture-perfect families. They're not there. Turn through the directory in your phone there and look at the pictures. We all look our best in the 
directory picture, right? But every one of those perfect-looking pictures and matching outfits kind of hides the daily routine life that is a struggle. With more disciples come more needs. doesn't matter what size we are. But if you're excited about new family that shows up and, oh, our church is growing, remember this text. Because with more disciples come more needs and as a result, there's going to be more of a call for servants to help meet those needs so the church can be healthy and we can pursue our mission. The church is full of needs. In this case, the Hellenist widows are dissatisfied with the service they're getting and they think the Hebrew widows are getting better treatment. What's going on here? Well, remember, the church is beginning to face opposition. At the very least, the the Israelite, the Jewish community, is not very fond of these followers of Jesus. They're, They're people of the way. They're following Jesus, this new way, this new Messiah. So the, the, the classic Jews still holding to their system of religion don't like the Christians. The Christians have lost jobs. Some of them have maybe been written out of the family will, so they don't have the security of land and farming land and such. There's, there's a lot of financial needs, and so we've seen in these early chapters some Christians are selling off some of their extra stuff and making that available as funding to help those that are in need. Obviously, widows would be among the needy ones. There's these Hellenists, and that word simply kind of represents Greek culture of the day. Think Alexander the Great, Greek Empire takes over the world, culture is spread all over. These are Jewish kind of followers, but they were raised in a Greek culture somewhere outside of Jerusalem and Judea. But they have moved back and they live here, but clearly they're culturally kind of different. Their first language is probably Greek and maybe not the Aramaic the other Hebrews are speaking. Not that they wouldn't know some Hebrew, but there's differences. It'd be very much like somebody moving here from Bosnia or Serbia or Ukraine and their culture, they they would be different. They would speak different. You could hear it in their accent. Culturally, they might not understand everything we do here. So those are the Hellenists, kind of Greek culture Jewish Christians. And then there's the classic Hebrews, born and raised in Palestine and Jerusalem. And this is home. They thought of themselves as the true Hebrew kind of people. So there's no denying there's probably a little bit of division because of, in a sense, ethnicity, but really more cultural distinction. We understand that. And there there is the very real need of these are widows who are in dire straits and someone who has no food on their table for that day and here's someone else does is kind of rightly bothered by that. And so they raise this complaint. If it's not dealt with, this could become divisive and problematic. I think we should just beware that 
natural difference can, can tend to foster spiritual division. You're raising your kids one way, someone else is doing it a little different. And the difference, however natural, it may be by preference or conviction, just family upbringing, the difference can open up the door for spiritual division. So just be warned of that. Just know that's a possibility. We have different ideas, different preferences and convictions, priorities. Let's face it, even in the church, not everyone has the same idea of what worship music should be, how long the sermon should be. There's all different ways of thinking, even in a local body. And the Bible never says that difference of opinion or different ways of thinking, different perspectives of looking at something is sinfully wrong. It's division that becomes wrong. It's the pride that says, but my way seems better. And fighting for that, that becomes the problem. So let's not be bothered. Let's not be afraid of the difference. Have a conversation with that other family when they're asking you why you do that with your kids and, and explain it. Maybe you'll be convinced their way's better. Maybe they'll hear you and think, oh, well, that makes sense. Difference isn't the issue. Just know that differences, because we tend to be judgmental, other times on the other end we tend to be defensive, it can cause division because of those differences. And sure enough, as these needs multiply, this complaint arises, division begins to stir. It's us against them. And now we need the Spirit's wisdom to wisely serve each other. Okay, Hellenist widows, let us serve you better. Let us love you and be more concerned for you so that you don't feel neglected. It's not because we love them more. We didn't know you had that need. So we're going to have some men help you. And this all just works out as the church rallies to extinguish this fire, lest its damage be extensive. Be aware of this before we move on. If it's true that we all have our needs, our way of thinking, our burdens, our thoughts about the church... Be aware that we, every one of us, we are all in the beginning phase of this story which leads to tension and disunity. If you have a need, it could easily fester into divisiveness. So the very fact that we have needs enters us into this story where we could soon begin saying things that sound like, us against them. I don't know why they always do that and never care for, and immediately we're drawing lines and the battle is on. And the devil sits back and lets us coast down this hill of division. And it all started with legitimate, real, recognized needs. So be aware. If you have needs and you recognize it, the devil wants to use that and make it all the worse. Be on guard. The church is full of needs. Number two, while recognizing that, we must also recognize that the church is equipped for meeting needs. You have needs. Well, the good news is you're in the right place. 
You're under the care of Christ, our loving shepherd, who says, I want you as a part of my whole family, the body, the church. And I've designed the church with all these different gifts that contribute for your well-being. So get to know these people and lean on them. Receive the benefit of their gifts. The church is equipped for meeting needs. Look at verse 2. And the 12, that's the apostles, summoned the full number of disciples. And we're not even sure what that means. We started with like a hundred and some in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Thousands were added and then more were added. We don't know how broad this call went out. It just says the full number of disciples are included in this solution. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The church is equipped for meeting needs. The apostles appeal to the broader church. They're, they're, they're communicating a lesson that Moses learned way back in the Old Testament as the deliverer of God's people. He led them out of Egypt and everybody came to Moses with their problems and pretty soon he's working long into the night and his father-in-law with wisdom comes to him and says, Moses, what are you doing? It was a nice way of caring for Moses saying, you're doing too much. You need to delegate. You need to round up other leader servants to help. In essence, he's saying, Moses, who do you think you are? You're not the answer man. You're not the only one who can help and lead and serve. So it is with the apostles. This isn't shirking lowly service. Oh, that's too much for us pastors. You know, we don't do real work. We don't, you know, we don't do that kind of stuff. They're not saying that. They were very clear. God's given us this work to do. But we recognize this work. We can't do both. Church, help. And they found others that could do this work because the church is equipped for meeting needs. God had equipped even this fledgling church with everything it needed to meet needs and love each other. They're equipped by the example that Christ has given them. The whole process of Jesus, the Son of God, descending to earth, taking on human flesh, accomplishing our redemption, is described in Philippians 2 as the work of a servant. We have his example. In John 13, on the evening of Christ's betrayal and his trial before his crucifixion, he comes into the upper room to celebrate the Passover feast with his disciples. And he's the only one that acts on the recognition that nobody has washed feet. Common ritual of the household servant. So Jesus does it. Modeling for us the meeting of needs. We're equipped by the example Christ gives us. We're equipped by the scriptures we affirm together in our affirmation of faith. We believe that God has told us with zeal and with love that we should serve one another. So how are we serving? We're equipped to serve. There's also a special gifting of service that shows up in spiritual gifts list. There's a special grace. There's a special innate wiring in some of you to serve. So whether it's that natural 
gifting that God has built into you by the Spirit, or whether it's in simple obedience to the command that he gives every one of us, we are to be servants. God has equipped his church for meeting needs, and it's not some toolbox of technology or programs. It's a toolbox of people. It's you. You say, but I'm, I'm, I haven't studied counseling. I wouldn't know what to do in some of those situations. I'm not saying you know what to do in every situation. I'm just saying you're equipped to serve. And so wrestle with that question. How does God want me to serve in the body? Everyone's covered by the simple commands God has given us to serve in the imitation of Christ. So how are we serving? You are God's plan for meeting the needs at Grace Bible Church. I'm not saying it's not me. Also, my gifts are included in the gifts of this body to meet needs. But do not leave here thinking this is a pastoral text for pastors to remember they need to meet needs. See very clearly that the pastoral type guys in this text, the apostles said, hey, church, we're in over our heads. We need you to serve. And they rallied and did just that. That helps us see, number three, that serving is an exercise of godliness. Verse three, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Those are the kind of people we need to lead the charge in serving. Good repute is an interesting word. We, we understand the word reputation, but it's not really the word that's here. The word here is the same word from Acts 1.8, you will be witnesses. It's the word, find somebody with a good witness. And I don't think it's just reputation because the first five chapters have unfolded what this witness is. It's living the Christian life so that in what you do and in what you say, Christ is known. We saw it last week in chapter 5 and verse 20 when the angel frees the apostles from prison and says, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life, this different kind of life that I've called you to live. That's all about making the name of Christ known, this life that you live. The apostles are telling the church, find people who are living this life, the life of witness. Find them. Because if they're wanting Christ to be known in everything they do, then surely they can serve like Christ served. They won't balk at washing feet. They're not going to balk at labored time with a cranky widow. Not that all widows are cranky. That's, I didn't say that, all right? The text said those Hellenist widows were a little cranky at the moment. But it takes somebody loving and caring, like Jesus, to work with somebody and help them understand need and provision and faith in those struggles. Serving is an exercise of godliness. We want godly servants more than we want service. It would be better for needs to go unmet and have that needy person have to default strictly to cast your burdens on the Lord than to have hypocritical or self-righteous people in the church lacking true humility and the heart of a servant going about doing all kinds of programs that are only fueling self-righteousness. 
True service is service done by godly servants. The chief servants in the church will be those who embrace the gospel. My life is defined by making Christ known. I'm a witness. That's what I am. I may be other things by role or job description. I'm a son. I'm a father. I'm a neighbor. I'm an employee. I'm all these things. But first and foremost, I am a witness. You will be witnesses. It's not you will be a vocational carpenter, and I hope you can testify to Christ in that job. No, it's the other way around. You will be a witness, so whatever job you have, it doesn't really matter. Be a witness there. It's what you are. And that kind of godliness, that understanding of who I am and what Christ wants of me, now shapes the service of the church. These men were godly men of good repute. They had good witness. They were full of the Spirit, meaning... They yielded to the Spirit's prompting. What does righteousness look like? What what does patience and long-suffering look like? What does goodness look like? What does kindness look like? That fruit of the Spirit was evident in them. They're full of wisdom. And here, I don't want us to think big, lofty, spiritual words. I want us to think like Bible common sense. That's great that they're full of the Spirit and have good reputation, a good witness, but... We can get lost in the life of following Jesus and forget that there should be some biblical common sense that unfolds in a spirit-filled believer. Because if these men were going to have to wade into needs, distributing food or money, dealing with widows, they would be counting on the Holy Spirit to, to be tactful, to be compassionate. Maybe to speak with tough love to that cranky woman and help her to see, no, wait, there's a better way for you to love your church. But that's not an easy task. We don't need reactionary people that are big on themselves. We need servants that are willing to get in there and and get dirty cleaning up this mess. That's what it means to be of good repute, full of the spirit and full of wisdom, to be a servant. Because you might be thinking, yeah, this is a good sermon. I I need to be more of a servant. But it's not actually the starting place. The starting place is, have, have you recognized what your life is all about? That you're supposed to be a witness, that you live and breathe and you work and you parent and you marry and you vacation and you do all those things because you're a witness doing all those things. Secondly, are you yielded to the Spirit? You can say, I want to be a better servant, but it starts with, find those people that are full of the Spirit. So start there. I appreciate any heart that says, I need to be a servant. But to chase away any self-righteousness or pride, you have to say, my life is lost in the life of Christ. I'm dead to self and alive in Him. I'm full of his spirit. Whatever the spirit wants me to do, I'll do. I will exercise daily Bible common sense this week in the way that I serve others. So how are you serving? Number four, let's talk ecclesiology. All right? You say, let's do that if it means something about the lunch menu, right? If that's served with mashed potatoes and gravy, let's talk about it. Um, Otherwise, move quickly. 
What is ecclesiology? Well, it's the study of the church. Uh, in the old language, the church took on this name of being ones called out by God, and that word was ecclesia. And so as it worked its way into studies of understanding the church, and how, what do we believe the Bible says about the church? That ecclesia word became the study of the church, or the ecclesia. So ecclesiology, study of the church. Obviously, we're looking at the church. What do I want you to notice here? Well, I want you to see that serving is foundational to church leadership. In verses 3 and 4, the apostles say, pick out men to do this, but we will do this. And it's interesting language of contrast. There's one way of need meeting, and there's this other way. The apostles say, we're busy with one, we can't do the other. But note that word, but. There is a contrast there. So there's two groups of servants in the church that are being summoned from the congregation to lead in the meeting of needs. I say two groups of servants because that's the language of the text. The language of the text isn't purely apostles or pastors. That doesn't even say pastors. We haven't really gotten there yet in the understanding of the New Testament church. Nor does the Bible say they are deacons. It just says we need someone to serve and meet these needs. But I want to argue and show you from this text that this is foundational to understanding the two primary spheres of need meeting in the leadership of the church. What's interesting is that our word for serving, or it could be translated ministering, or it could be translated deaconing, is all through our text. In verse 1, the widows were being neglected in the daily deaconing, the daily ministry, the daily serving. That word is distribution, kind of representing the act of serving and distributing the food, but the word is the word diakonos, deacon. Verse 2, the apostles say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That word serve is the word diakonos, deacon. But in its pure form, before you think, oh, I know what a deacon is, that's a church leader. No, just think of it originally as it's just a servant. It became known as one of the leading servants of the church. But its origin here in chapter 6 is we just need servants to serve. Even noting that serving tables, it steers us down the path of food, right? We picture waiters serving the table. Luke uses this word. Remember, Luke wrote this text. In his gospel account, he uses the word table in the context of banking. When Jesus is teaching and he says, you should have at least taken that, that gift I gave you and invested it in the bank to make interest. And that word bank was the word used here in our text for table. So clearly these men weren't just serving food. It may very well have been. They're just organizing the, the income that comes in the offering. They're distributing that to the needs. They might not have been the ones prepping food for the Hellenistic widow. But they were serving, they were facilitating needs being met in a way that the, the Bible teachers 
could not come up with enough time to do. The Bible teachers are teaching, the apostles are teaching, and guess what? Needs weren't being met. Summon the church for more servants, and the Bible teachers can still teach and meet needs through the word and prayer, but others are meeting the needs through getting money and food to the people in need. And now I ask you, which one of those is more important in the church? Which one of those God-ordained, spirit-empowered services is more important in the church? And our minds think, I know the answer he wants us to give. It's the answer about him preaching the word. But we would be wrong. Both of the apostles' ministry of the word and this ministry of serving tables are both under this umbrella of this word deaconing ministry or service. It's all serving. It's just a distinction of how you serve the church. How has God gifted you? What can you contribute? It's not a comparison. It's merely a distinction. We will give ourselves to the word and prayer ministry, but someone else has to do that. Unless we think, oh, but it's still that. They have the word and the prayer ministry. That sounds a lot better. Except our story begins with them doing that and the church's needs aren't being met. I'm not saying the word and prayer are insufficient. I'm simply saying it's insufficient for only some of the gifts to be contributed in the church. So sit there and say, I don't think I'll ever stand in a pulpit and teach or in a Sunday school class. I don't think I'm a teacher. I don't need to argue with you right now. I'll let the Holy Spirit tell you what you need to do there. But you must recognize that you're a servant called to serve the church. And all this text is doing for us is steering us down a path of understanding leadership in the church, which we believe is just two offices, the office of the pastor and the office of the deacon. Pastors, based on this foundational text, shepherd with the word and through prayer to help meet needs. But then there are deacons who serve in practical ways that meet needs and their ministry is is equal in its power, in its effectiveness, in its accomplishment, in its endorsement by God and His Holy Spirit. So understand that serving is foundational to even understanding the practice of the church, what we think we understand in pastors and deacons. I don't know if we can say this is the text for understanding everything about deacons. But I can say this is the foundation where we begin to see a divergence, a distinction of gifts. Not everybody's the same. Praise the Lord. Uh, You don't want me trying to meet all the needs. There are people in this church who will be far better in the way they minister to you than I would be. That's the way God's designed it. We just need to take up that banner and champion this cause. That's right. This church isn't about whoever fills the pulpit. It's about the body and all the gifts. And so we take up this banner for like the servant gifts behind the scenes. It's just that in our culture, most churches are known by the face in the pulpit. That's so-and-so's church. I understand it. I put up with it. 
but you feel like you have to fight against it lest people say, I don't have anything to contribute. I can't do that. You might be exactly right. You can't do that. It might be because God doesn't want you to do that. But he wants you to serve. Finally, our last point is both a simple observation and an act of faith. And the point is this, serving works. Serving works. In verses 5 through 7, we see just a little taste of how it works. Verse 5, what they said pleased the whole gathering. They said, that's a great idea. Why were we thinking that the apostles would do all this work? When there used to be 120 followers, then 3,000 were added to the church at Pentecost, then it was up to 5,000 just numbering the men. Why would we think 12 people could care for that many needs? Great idea. We have the Holy Spirit too. We can serve. Let's find some real servants of servants that can lead the charge and we'll rally behind them. I've always tried to describe that role of deacon as they're just a servant among servants because pastors are supposed to be servants. Everyone in the church is supposed to be a servant. But when it comes to we're not meeting needs as well as we could, let's organize our serving. Could you head up this kind of service? Could you serve by helping other servants to be involved? We'll call you a proper deacon. Everyone's a deacon at this church, but we're going to give you a special capital D letter, deacon, because you're serving other servants to make sure service gets done. Can we use the word service anymore today? So we're all deacons, but when we have to organize because there's just so many needs, we're going to ask some to carry a little extra weight of serving. And that's the office of deacon in the church. Deacons don't have authority. They shouldn't be making decisions. We, they shouldn't be on a board. That, that's not what the Bible says. They're, they're organizers of servants because they are so good at seeing needs and meeting them. They're willing to carry some extra weight. We thank God for that role. Understand that serving works. This saying pleased the whole gathering and they, they rallied some servants, commissioned them for their special task, and verse 7 says, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Practically speaking, we call this bookends. There's fancier words, but it really just means bookends. This paragraph has these bookends. And sometimes in, in the very language of the text, it's there to show us, take just this paragraph and, and it, it has a message all its own. So the bookend was in verse 1, when the disciples were increasing in number. What's the other bookend? The word of God continued to increase. And it's the same word. It's like those matching bookends you could have on a bookshelf of, you know, some portrait head of somebody or something. They match. They go together. It starts and it ends here. The disciples were increasing, but that caused problems and we need service so we don't get disunified and get derailed in our purpose. But when we have servants, we are unified. The church is healthy. It knows its mission. And so we get to the bookend. The mission kept increasing. 
And suddenly we see that this grand theme of Acts, the advance of the kingdom of God through the nations of the world throughout humanity, is leaning pretty hard on you this week carving out a little time to meet somebody in their need. Serving unifies the body for the sake of the gospel advance. The disciples increased, verse 1. It's the kingdom that's increasing in verse 7. And in between is tension, conflict, us against them. Come on, people, we need to love each other and serve each other. I know we're different, but where is our unity in Christ? And when that all shakes out, this train is back on track and it's not slowing down. The kingdom of God is advancing. Serving works. I would say it will work for you personally as well. In John 13, after Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he told them, if I as your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you should do the same thing to each other. If I can serve you, then you should serve each other. And then he added this at the end, and you'll be happy if you do it. Now, this is a point of battle in your mind. This is why this last line, serving works, is an act of faith. Because the devil's going to tell you, if you serve, you lose. You have to submit yourself to someone else. They get their way. You're the doormat. Everyone walks on you. He has all kinds of ways of degrading service and making you think, that is not a win situation for me to serve when Jesus has said, you in, said to you in plain language, if you serve as I have served you, you'll be happy. You will taste Christ's likeness down there at the bottom where only servants congregate. I told you a little about our tour to the White House. It's kind of neat to get down there into the, the narrow, crowded alley where the White House kitchen was. Where, where generally it's just the servants, the people that aren't doing press conferences. There's always room at the bottom. There's always room in the dish pit. You know, if you need somewhere to serve, you might not be the, the, the guest of honor at the table, but I can tell you there's going to be room in the dish pit cleaning up after the party's over. Jesus says, and you must take him at his word, serving will make you happy. The devil will say the opposite. You can't be happy unless you're on top, unless people serve you. So what will you believe? Serving works. Do you see it in the text? Can you see in just seven verses the problem, how serving saves the day and the gospel advances? It works. Will you believe that serving is God's design for you this week? Will you believe that serving is at least part of God's plan for a better marriage this week? Better footing in your parenting? Better understanding of how to get along with some hard people you work with? People that aren't believers and don't have the worldview you have? It's not easy. But factor in serving, factor in the mind of a servant, desiring what's best for someone else and trying to accomplish that for them. How are you serving? Heavenly Father, give us a taste 
of greatness, the greatness that you define, that whoever will be great among you must be servant of all. Oh, Lord, please deliver us from the self-destruction of ego and pride and bring us to that sweet place of nothingness where we are willing to serve anybody and do anything, remembering always that Christ humbled himself and took upon him the form of a servant to accomplish our salvation. And so while we need to hear the call to serve, may we lift our eyes to Jesus and run this race of serving, looking unto him who served us with forgiveness of sins, who served us with his righteousness and who has served us with the hope of heaven. We gathered this morning to worship in the name of the risen Christ and we leave here this morning under the commission of our Lord and Savior who has told us that serving will be the path to happiness. So make us servants so that we will look more like Christ and he will receive glory from our lives even today. May this work begin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.